for 400 years of a very long minor chord. 400 years in which God had not spoken to his people. And then this occurs in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be? I'm a virgin. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. That's the background. Now the text, which is Mary's response, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord, Holy Spirit, would you fall mightily on us. Enable us not only to understand these words, but to appropriate them, to act on them, to be transformed by them. Help us to see you, Lord as you are revealed mightily in the Lord Jesus Christ, and may we not leave the same people we have come in. We pray it in the strong name of Christ, and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. This is the Magnificat, verses 46 to 55, and 
Mary's song. We have started a series. Uh, Todd started the series last week of the ordinary people of Christmas. He preached a great sermon on Zechariah and Elizabeth. And now we come to Mary. Mary sings the Magnificat. The Magnificat, just meaning in Latin simply, magnifies. My soul magnifies the Lord. I make, I make great the name of the Lord. I'm bragging on the Lord. Now, we've been taught in our hymnody at times to think of gentle Mary, meek and mild, but to think of her in such a way is to misjudge her. Mary and her song in particular, because of the revelation of God's grace to her, made her a dangerous person, a revolutionary person. In fact, before India won her independence from England, Archbishop William Temple, the head of the Anglican Church, Archbishop William Temple forbade the priests to read in public the Magnificat because he feared it would set off a revolution in India. Even as recently as the 1980s, the Guatemalan government forbade the public reading of the Magnificat. It was against the law to read the Magnificat because they viewed it as subversive to the government, to their oppressive government. It's a dangerous, this is a dangerous passage. And it can make a person dangerous to the kingdom of the devil. It makes us act courageously. I don't say makes us feel courageously because courage is not a feeling, it's an action. This, this young girl was transformed into a powerful person in the hand of God because she saw God. And she saw God reflected in two of his key attributes, his essential attributes, his mercy and his might. She understood that his might is merciful and his, his mercy is mighty. And it made her a courageous revolutionary. It can do the same for you. I want us to look at how she describes God's mercy and his might and see if it doesn't encourage your soul as well, I hope if you're not a Christian, to even draw you to belief in Christ for the first time. Mary's Magnificat begins in verse 46 and, and into 47 with this poetic device we call hendiades, which is just two, two uh, parallel sentences that say the same thing slightly differently in order to convey completeness. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In other words, she has overcome so much by these attributes of God that she says, from the bottom of my heart, from every, every cell in my body, from everything in me, I want to brag, to extol, to magnify the mercy and might of God my Redeemer being revealed in Jesus Christ. What was so transformative? What was, what was so soul-stirring to her about God's mercy? Mercy can be a, a churchy word. We can lose its significance. And so I want us to think about what that word in itself means, first of all, and, and, uh, and to impress on you that 
mercy really is at the essence of who God is. You know, when, when Moses was, was disillusioned with the people of God that he was, he was leading out, we'll get to this eventually in, in the book of Exodus, and Moses was disillusioned because these people whom God had delivered out of Egypt were now bowing to, to, to golden calves. And he, he broke the tablets in anger. He went back up to, to God and he said, you've got to show me who you really are. You've got to show me who you're, what you are in your essence. Show me your glory. Show me what makes you tick. And God says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will be merciful toward whom I will show mercy. And later he expanded that and he said, uh, here it is more, more completely. I am the Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy. Forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Visiting iniquity to three and four generations, but keeping loving kindness to thousands of generations. I am compassion. I am mercy at the core of my being. That helps a little bit. I get the impression with those other words, but just think about the word compassion. The prefix is with, and passion is a feeling. So to be compassionate is to feel with someone. It is particularly to feel with their pain. For God to be merciful is, yes, no, He doesn't give us what we deserve, but it's more than that. It is God looking hard into our pain and showing mercy, taking that pain into Himself, even into the person of Christ, living and dying with it and rising over it. You also understand, you, you understand mercy as you look at it as it is applied to various groups of people or people in certain kinds of trouble. And that's what Mary does. She thinks through her life and she thinks through her people's lives and she concludes God is merciful. He's compassionate. He's merciful in three ways. We find in the passage... Uh, that uh, he is merciful toward the humiliated, he's merciful toward the disappointed, he's merciful toward the forgotten. Look at verses 48 and, 40 and 52. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And verse 52, he has exalted those of humble state. Now Mary is obviously a humble person. That is, she, she doesn't take glory to herself. She's not, she doesn't... Uh, put herself forward into the limelight. That's true, but that's not what she's getting at here. She is describing her humiliated state. This is a God who feels the pain of someone in humiliation. And, and you, you know, you can be humiliated in a couple of ways. You can be shamed. Somebody else can shame you, can make you feel shamed. Someone in your family, someone in your workplace, someone in your society, someone on the on the on the recreational in recreation, somebody on the on the on the athletic field. So you can feel shame. Someone can impose shame on you, and that's what was happening to Mary. Think of the shame Mary endured. She endured shame as a Jew. 
She wasn't in the ruling class. They were a dominated people. She felt shame as an, as an immigrant. She had, had to come to this place to, to register. She had to register with her husband eventually to, to pay taxes. She was being trafficked as a human being. She was poor. She was impoverished by the oppressive taxation system of Herod the Great and his insatiable appetite for his own luxuries and buildings. She was shamed, humiliated as a woman. Just think about, just think about uh, Mary at this day in time. Just think of what she had to listen to her pastors pray at the time. I thank you, God, that you have not made me. Her, her religious leaders, her pastors would have said, I thank you, God, that you haven't made me a Gentile or a Samaritan or a woman. Just think of the shame she felt as an unmarried pregnant woman. Oh, sure, sure, Mary, this baby's conceived by the Holy Spirit. We know you have a fiancé. She's humiliated. Humiliated because of her ethnicity. Humiliated as one who's not educated. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you can identify with that Shame, you have been shamed, humiliated. How does God deal with humiliated people? And then there, you can humiliate yourself, you can shame, you can bring shame on yourself. We do that as sinners. The Bible says, Paul says, what benefit are you now deriving of those things of which you are ashamed? When you sin against a holy God, it brings shame. Mary knew herself to be a sinner. She praises, she praises God immediately that God has sent a Savior to her. We don't know what particular sins she had in her mind or that she had committed, but we know by definition she was born a sinner, and she sinned, and that brings shame. God showed her compassion. Mary to you, one who has been humiliated by your culture and humiliated by even your religious establishment and you who have brought shame on yourself, Mary, I'm going to bring the Savior through you. She also understood God's mercy, His compassion for those who are disappointed. Uh, look at it in verses 50 and 54 and 55, verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Our text says that, that Mary counts herself among those who fear God. Now, does it mean that she's Afraid of God? Well, she was afraid initially of the angel, but we don't see any other indication that she's afraid of God in a servile way. But, but fear, we understand by studying carefully the Old Testament, especially the example of Abraham and offering his son Isaac, that fear is, is not, is not a, a, a dread of God. Fear is being convinced that God is faithful to his promise at all times. That's why she mentions that uh, he's been faithful from generation to generation. That's why she talks about Israel. It's why she speaks of Abraham. 
you just think about how the Bible is organized, how it makes that point. Think about Genesis 1 through 11. There's a whole lot of history squeezed into Genesis 1 through 11. There's no way to calculate it exactly. But there's the creation. There's the, there's the, the, the creation of the world, the creation of, of uh, man and woman. There is the fall. There is the, there is the, the, the multiplication of people. And, and, and people who, who are spread around and they come, to the, they come to the Tower of Babel, the division of tongues. And we don't know exactly how long all of that took, but it was a long, long time, many thousands of years. But then everything slows down from Genesis 12 to Revelation 22. That's a, several thousand years too, but it's, it can't be as long as Genesis 1 through 11. And why? Why the difference? It slows down because God reveals His promise to Abraham. I'm going to, He saves him, first of all, by, by justifying him by grace alone through faith. He just receives it as a gift. That's the way you come to, to Christ. You receive it as a gift. And then he says, I'm going to bring through you the Messiah, Abraham, and I'm going to save from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation so many people, nobody will ever be able to count them. And Genesis 12 to Revelation 22 is the unfolding of the fulfillment of that promise. Disappointment after disappointment, people trying to to, to, to kill the coming Messiah, trying to wipe out the people through whom the Messiah will come, the people of God disappointing him, nations disappointing, nations and kings holding forth promises and disappointing. But there is one, one who never, ever disappoints, and it's the faithful God who brings the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. She says, I fear him. That is, a, I, I trust him no matter what. I have a firm conviction that no matter what happens in my life or what happens in this society, I know that God, my Redeemer, is bringing salvation and will not quit until it is all done. No matter who has disappointed you, and someone will, You've disappointed yourself by your past sin. Your spouse has disappointed you. Your children disappointed you. Your parents have disappointed you. The world has disappointed you. Politicians disappointed you. Uh, leaders in your company have disappointed you. Somebody's disappointed you, and they will continue to disappoint you. But there is one who never will. There is one who will never cease to be faithful to this promise that he is saving in Jesus Christ and he's including you in it by faith. And he will not cease until he redeems the whole cosmos. This is mercy. God is merciful toward the disappointed and God is merciful toward the forgotten. You see in verses 51 to 53, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the, the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. He has filled the hungry with good things. Now, do you hear how threatening that would be to oppressive leaders in this day and age? The people in this day and age who were rich or powerful assumed they were because they deserved to be. And they further assumed that those who were poor were poor because they deserved to be. Or the people who were on the inside because they had hit the genetic lottery, 
they deserved to be there. And those who were on the outside, because they had not hit the genetic lottery, because they were not the right ethnicity, deserved to be there. There were all kinds of rules like that in this age, just as there are today. You know, there's some people who still believe that the poor are poor because they deserve to be. Or people who are oppressed are oppressed because they deserve to be. Now you see why this is so dangerous. Because human beings, the history of human beings has been, and it's true of us too, in our heart of hearts, we're always looking for ways to gather with a group of people so we can exclude another group of people. It can be at large in society. It can be ethnically based. It can be your lunchroom in the cafeteria. We want to find ways to cancel out others or to exclude them. But here is what God does. He topples every such effort. It's what he's always done in the history of Christianity. That is, when people are walking with Christ, sometimes so-called Christians have become complicit in such, such oppression, but, but, but God topples the efforts of anyone who says, my bearing the image of God is more significant than your bearing the image of God. And then he uses Christians to topple the same. He brings down the proud from their thrones and he exalts those of humble estate. He feeds the hungry. He advocates for the poor. If you're looking for what the will of God is for your life, here is one easy way to answer it. The will of God is always joining Him in advocating for, supporting, and serving the least of these. I am so grateful that you are those who are uh, involved in that kind of merciful, those practical acts of mercy all through this city and, and really around the world and continue to encourage you in it. That is, that is the work of God. It's demonstrating that we believe in a Christ who exalts the humble and feeds the poor and the hungry spiritually and physically. So proud of you as a congregation, and yet there's some of you maybe who are looking for ways to give an outlet to your, your, what you have experienced in God's mercy. We, you can serve people like Mary who have unwed pregnancies, the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Those who are being human trafficked, you can serve through Citizens for Community Values and Restore Corps. Those who are not able to live out their dignity as image bearers because of joblessness or poverty, you can help by volunteering at Advanced Memphis or ECOP. Those with special needs in our congregation, you can serve through our Shine ministry. The immigrants in our city, you can advocate for with mercy and justice through World Relief or Sukasa. For to work towards criminal justice reform, you can work with Just City and those who can't read and are going to be behind by third grade. Arise to Read is a wonderful program. To help families stuck in generational brokenness, you can volunteer with Agape or, or assist with 
development of microenterprises to help people out of their cyclical poverty through ministries like uh, Orange, the, uh, the house at Orange Mound, and, and then to help distressed cities that have been portions of our city that have been left behind and forgotten. You can, you can help with the Alcee Ball Community Development Corporation. There are many, many others, 60-some that we partner with just in this church, but I want you to understand that the reason we do it is because this is the way God ministered to Mary. God found Mary and showed her mercy, and she magnified him. I want to make one final point there on that, uh, about the, the mercy that God showed. I want, you to, I want you to realize that when God shows you mercy and when you are to reflect God's image by showing mercy to others, it's not pity. It's not patronizing. It's not paternalistic. And, and, and here's, here's where we can almost miss it in this passage. Look back at verse 28 at the translation we have for the way the angel Gabriel, representing God, comes to Mary. He came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Doesn't that just warm your heart, that translation? Greetings, O favored one. What if I talk to you that way? What if you talk to your husband or wife or your child or your best friend that way? Hail, O favored one. Hail, one highly esteemed. I wouldn't mind it myself. Hail, highly esteemed. That sounds pretty good. It's leftover from the Latin. And Martin Luther complained about this translation. Hail, highly esteemed. He said, what does that mean? This should be written in real German, he said. If I could write this in real German, I would say, Liebe, Maria. Beloved Mary. Now, I don't have to imagine that. This is exactly the way the Lord does address us. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 4. This is the kind of greeting that Mary most likely would have heard in her native tongue. 43, 4, Isaiah, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. That's in the Old Testament. Precious. Honored. I love you. How does God show mercy and compassion to people who are humiliated and disappointed and forgotten? Does he come to them and say, you know, I feel so sorry for you, you poor pitiful thing. Pat us on the head. And say, I've got to go to all this trouble to be merciful to you. He doesn't. He said, I love you. And it grieves me that you are humiliated, disappointed, and forgotten. God has chosen before the foundation of the world. He's chosen before he made the world. He's chosen before you were born to set his love on you for no other reason than he has chosen to love you. And yet you can tend to think by the shaming of others, by the being disappointed, by disappointing yourself, by thinking that everyone has forgotten you. You tend to think that if I could just work my way back into favor, God would love me again. Well, it's not what attracted him in the first place. Nothing attracted him. He just chose to love you. It's the way he comes to you today. 
No wonder Mary magnified the Lord. He is merciful. He is compassionate. And then she said, I, I delight in my God because he is mighty. He, he doesn't just have a heart of compassion. He can actually do something about my need. He's all-powerful. He can not only cure my need, he can also cure and redeem my world. He does it, you see, in verses 42 and 52 and 49 and 52 and 53. He does it by exalting the humble and humbling the exalted. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Can you, do you realize how radical this is for Mary to say? Because Caesar Augustus, the one who commanded for all the world to be taxed, Caesar Augustus called himself the Son of God. And this little maiden says he's not the Son of God. The one who will be born from my womb is the Son of God. Herod calls himself the great. He is not great. My Lord is the great one. Revolutionary. You know what it means further in the example of Mary? It means that you and I, if we are in Christ, are not helpless. We are not helpless victims. Not helpless victims of our sin, not helpless victims of our culture, not helpless victims of the evil spirits surrounding us. We are never, ever helpless victims because God is the one who joins us to himself through Christ and exalts us and delights to show the world how strong he is by using the weakest among us to shame the proud and the wise. Just think about it. This is a day when if Mary or Elizabeth were to give legal testimony, they would be discounted because they were women. But God chooses women to be the first to herald His coming. God chooses women to be last at the cross and first at the tomb. God bases the resurrection accounts on the testimony of these women. And, and Mary, we read, we, find, we infer by putting several verses together that Mary was present at Pentecost. She was in the upper room with all the others. She's named as such, waiting for the Spirit to come. And the Spirit comes, then, uh, th then she becomes a witness as He promised. The, the, the apostles were preaching, yes, in, in, uh, in tongues known by everybody there, but she was one of those witnesses. Now, you may feel yourself to be forgotten and humiliated and, and helpless, but can you be all of the things that Mary was at the same time? Can you be worse off than Mary? Someone being trafficked, despised as a woman, uh, an immigrant, poor, uneducated, unable. I, I doubt that there are many who fit all of that profile, but God used, God came to Mary said, you will humiliate Herod, Caesar Augustus. Your testimony will endure. Where is Caesar? Where is Herod? I want you to notice one final thing in this passage in verses 51 to 54. She exalts 
the mighty one, the mighty one who lifts up the humble and promises to cure all things in our world at the great day. I want you to see the confidence with which Mary spoke. Those uh, several of you are studying Greek. There's an aorist verb in the Greek. It's just a past tense, but there's a futuristic tense to an aoristic verb. Here's what it means. She says, she speaks in such a way to... She gives an indication that these things have already occurred when not all of them could have occurred. See how she says in verse 51, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought them down. He has exalted the humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped His servant. Not all of these things will be fulfilled until Christ returns, but they may as well have been fulfilled because they've been promised by a faithful God. How is Mary able to be so courageous? How is she able to speak so courageously, so daringly? How to live so daringly? How to be last at the cross and first at the tomb, though it could have brought great pain to her? Because she knew her God, revealed in Jesus Christ to be merciful and mighty. She knew that Jesus will win. So as I was preaching in the mornings in the earlier service, I thought of a young woman in our previous congregation, and she's a niece of this congregation, niece of somebody in this congregation as well, but she had a very interesting way of watching her favorite football team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. She was passionate about the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, and, but she could not bear to see them lose. It would just ruin her, ruin her for a week. So this was her strategy. She would tape the Pittsburgh Steelers. She would record them ahead of time. And then if uh, someone told her that, she, that they won, then she would watch the game. And so when she found out the Steelers won the game, then she would watch the game. And then if, you know, if there was a fumble or an interception or, or a setback of some kind, they, didn't, they lost the, the ball and down, so she, she'd say, that's okay. I know we're going to win. She knew who was going to win. Enabled her to watch the game with joy. You know, when you think that you have completely botched everything and when you don't know what the future holds or what's going to happen to you economically or in your job or you dread the future you dread the election you hate what's happening in your work you don't know what's happening in your family when you're tempted to think that all is lost God what are you doing you just turn to the back of this book and it tells you Jesus will win. He is the one who will exalt the humble, humble the proud, get the victory, bring glory to himself. And when you know you're on the winning side, you can act courageously in the meantime.
just like gentle Mary, not so meek and mild, but dangerous. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you for telling us how the story ends. We've never found in all of history that you have failed to keep one of your promises. So we have to believe that this promise that you will be King of kings and Lord of lords and every last enemy will be made your footstool will be kept as well. Thank you for choosing Mary. Thank you for showing her to be that one who has received, received the grace of God, betrothed and taken and carried. She's a, she's a trophy of grace. Oh, Lord, make us like her, strong in your grace and one who magnifies, ones who magnify the gospel by showing confidence in your might and the generosity of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen.